So I'm guessing uh, those that did not raise their hands did not shower this morning. All right. Did you put deodorant on, please? All right. God loves you uh, as you are, but uh, we prefer you to take showers. We'll cut some grace because I know how many people did not have power last night, this morning when you woke up? All right. So why didn't you shower this morning then if you have power? Uh, anyways, welcome to uh, Genesis, our first uh, service uh, worship gathering post uh, snowstorm. It's pretty crazy that uh, it's snowing as hard as it did last night. Um, I lost power. I live uh, about a mile down the street, and it was the most untimely time to lose power. There's two minutes left in the Ohio State game, and the power goes completely down. And I'm like, okay, I'll just get on the internet. And I'm like, well, that won't work either. So I called my sister right here, who took my phone call at 11.30, and she walked me through, or at 12 o'clock, either or. Clocks didn't work either, so, um, so it's pretty crazy. I'm uh, excited to be here today. A uh, few things uh, I wanted to share with you. Uh, if you're brand new to Genesis, I'm absolutely excited and just psyched that you're here, because God's doing some really awesome things in this community, uh, and I would love for you to be part of not only the community, but what God's doing in uh, the community, that you could be part of that. Uh, and one of the things uh, that we have been talking about over the past month, month and a half, is something called Genesis South Boston. Uh, if you're familiar with Genesis, we are a church that uh, is very committed uh, to planting churches. And so we are a church plant ourselves. We're a little over two years old uh, when we initially got going as a church plant. And uh, about four or five months ago, God introduced us to uh, a really godly man named Brantz, and uh, over the past uh, month, uh, Brantz has led worship for us a couple times. He actually preached uh, last Sunday, so you've got to interact with him uh, a little bit over the past month, but one of the things that we have been sensing the Lord was doing is raising up Brantz uh, to be a huge part of what God's doing in this community, uh, but also uh, to come alongside Brantz and his call uh, to plant a church in South Boston. So we mentioned this about a month ago. And uh, I wanted to give you just a, a very brief update. Uh, we're still pretty excited about where we see the Lord uh, leading uh, Genesis, uh, specifically as it relates to Genesis South Boston and, uh, and Brants within our community. Uh, I mentioned a, a month ago that uh, this was something that we feel the Lord is leading us, but we're going to hold it in our open hand. Uh, so if God decides to change plans, change direction, that's okay. It's in an open hand. Uh, if God wants to do something different, we'll follow wherever God leads. Uh, but I wanted to share this morning, we're still pretty excited and convinced that God is leading us uh, as a church uh, to be part of planting a church uh, with Brantz uh, as a lead pastor in, in South Boston. Uh, now, what that practically means, and one of the things that I want to share with you guys, uh, is we're going to be uh, looking to extend an invitation to Brantz to be a pastor on staff here uh, at Genesis. And one of the things, one of his roles would be to lead Genesis in worship uh, each week, uh, but he would not be our worship pastor. What uh, Brantz would be, he's a pastor on staff here uh, at Genesis, certainly serving uh, in the capacity of worship, and the heart for what Brantz would be doing with worship uh, is to train up, hopefully, uh, three other worship leaders. Uh, one that would be our full-time worship pastor here at Genesis, one that would be ready to go uh, and uh, be worship pastor in Genesis South Boston, and we're pretty confident that God's going to have more churches in store for us, so we want to get ready for uh, a third church uh, to get up and going. So his focus, uh, kind of part-time, is going to be uh, developing gatherings, developing worship, developing other 
uh, worship uh, pastors. Uh, and then the other uh, aspect of his time is going to be continuing to develop uh, what he's already been doing in South Boston. So I'm sharing this with you now uh, because one of the things we invited you about five weeks ago is to pray about this. Uh, this is not a, a done deal. Uh, I shared uh, last week, we got all of our leaders together, which is about 40 some odd people uh, who are ministry team leaders, community group leaders, elders and deacons, uh, to share again with them first what we sense the Lord doing, and we wanted to share with you as a community. Uh, so this week, uh, you've already been praying about it, I hope, but uh, the hope would be if you've got a question, if you've got a concern, if you have a suggestion, if you have something that you wanted to put on the table uh, before we really start to solidify some of these plans, we need to hear from you. Um, our hope next week would be to officially uh, invite Brants on as a pastor uh, of Genesis, uh, facilitating worship, training worship leaders, and just continuing to do the work uh, of ministry down in South Boston. So this week, uh, be praying. If you have a question, comment, suggestion, concern, uh, send me an email. Send, uh, you can send an email. You can call uh, to elders at genesisthejourney.com. Uh, uh, and uh, next week, the hope would be that we'd be able to introduce Brantz as a, as a pastor uh, here within the Genesis community. Uh, the second thing I'll share with you is an update as to what God's been doing. Uh, we're pretty excited about, uh, we sense the Lord leading us to start, start a second gathering. Uh, so rather than just having one gathering on Sundays, uh, move to two different gatherings, uh, specifically probably a gathering at 9 o'clock a.m. Uh, and a gathering at 11 o'clock a.m. Uh, now, we still have more room here uh, in our sanctuary. Uh, I know a lot of you don't, you know, journey back to the Genesis Kids area, uh, but we'll have on a given Sunday anywhere between 30 to 40 uh, kids back there. If you've been back in the Genesis Kids room, that's pretty tight. Uh, we can do about 35 to 40 kids, but we can't really do too much more. Uh, so part of why we start a second gathering is because we need to, but even more than need to, we believe that God would use a second gathering to help us reach uh, more people uh, with the gospel. So uh, we don't have an official date. We're not starting that next week. Uh, we're looking at sometime in uh, mid to late January, early February. Uh, but one of the things I'd want you to pray about is pulling off two services uh, is a huge, huge deal. Uh, it takes a lot of people to pull off a gathering. And so if we're going to do two, uh, we need to kind of double the amount of people that we have serving uh, to make the gatherings actually work and uh, flow well. So uh, I'm going to pray and uh, pray for our time as we uh, open scripture together. Uh, but we don't take time to give updates too often. I wanted to give you that an important update about Genesis South Boston, Brant's role uh, within our community, uh, as well as uh, a second uh, service at some point or in early 2012. Uh, Father God, thank you for being good, for being kind, for being gracious. Uh, God, for loving us. God, thanks for being uh, very active uh, in our lives and certainly in the life of this community. Uh, God, I give thanks for uh, where we sense uh, you leading us, uh, specifically and planting a church in South Boston uh, with Brantz. God, thank you for introducing us to him, for raising him up, for calling him here. Uh, and God, thank you for giving this man not only a huge heart for you, but a huge heart already for this church community. Uh, so God, you tell us that when we need wisdom to come to you, who gives uh, generously to all who ask without finding fault. Uh, so God, I pray for our community that you would give us wisdom. Uh, and God, that uh, in this coming week, in this next uh, seven days, uh, that you would really just bless this community, this church, Genesis, with a great sense of unity as to what you're doing in our midst. Uh, Jesus, I ask that you would now speak to us uh, through your word, 
God, I firmly believe that everyone that is in this place this morning, you've brought here for a very specific reason. Uh, so God, just open up our hearts, uh, open up our eyes. Uh, God, and just give us the grace we need uh, to respond to you in this place. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, when you came in, you got a rock on your table, on your chair. Now, my rock is bigger than yours, so if you're thinking about throwing a rock my way, I will duck and just be careful because I have got a bigger rock. Uh, I'll explain the rocks uh, in a little bit. Uh, they, have, uh, they tie into uh, actually the passage of Scripture that we're looking at. Uh, before I open up uh, John chapter 8, uh, the story of a woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery and uh, was brought out in a very public way uh, to be stoned. Um, before I kind of walk through and unpack that story, that passage, this encounter that this woman had with Jesus, uh, think, if you will, of an embarrassing moment. Um, you know, just kind of a goofy moment. Uh, nothing sinful per se, but just a moment where you're like, wow, I just look like a huge fool and uh, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, as I was thinking about my own embarrassing moments, the list, unfortunately, was pretty long. Uh, I think one of my favorite embarrassing moments, if you can have a favorite, uh, was uh, Kyle and I went out to lunch with this couple and uh, this guy had just had a, a surgery and he was explaining, I had no idea who this guy was. We met him at church. We went out to uh, lunch with him and his wife after service. And uh, so I love asking questions. And so I'm asking him all sorts of questions. And Kyle is kind of kicking me under the table like, okay, Michael, these are really personal questions. And, but he kept answering all my questions about his surgery. He had a colon surgery. And so he's telling me about this colon surgery and, uh, you know, all of the stuff that goes along with a colon surgery. And he's telling me about a bag that he had to have on his waist, essentially, for like four months. And I'm like, wow, what was that like? What did that look like? And um, so anyways, I'm just asking with a straight face. We get to the car, and uh, Kyle's like, Michael, you have no clue what a colon is, do you? And I said, well, to be honest, I, I have no clue what a colon is. So Kyla gives me a quick medical... Uh, she explains what a colon is. If you don't know what a colon is, just next time you meet someone who's had colon surgery, don't ask them about it. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, why didn't you just, just stop me? And she's like, well, you just kept going. There was no stopping you with all of these questions. Now, that's just an embarrassing moment. Um, to be honest, I don't even know if we ever saw that couple again, but... Um, I'm sure if he, we did see each other, he'd be like, wow, you're, you, you don't know anything. So that's embarrassing. A foolish moment, as it were. It's not sinful to not know what a colon is. It's just apparently Ohio State did not teach me that. <laughs> but uh, think, if you will, of uh, a sinful moment. Think of uh, a moment you had where you got busted. Uh, you got exposed. Uh, you got caught, uh, as it were, with uh, your hand in, in the cookie jar. Uh, and there was no, no explaining it, no backing out. You literally just got busted. Uh, if you're married, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you said a really ill-spoken, harsh word towards your husband or towards um, your wife, only to turn around and maybe your, your son or your daughter or your neighbor was just looking at you and you just have your heart just kind of drops. Uh, I don't know for those of you who've ever had that moment where you're looking at stuff on the computer you knew you shouldn't be looking at only to realize, wow, someone is standing behind me right now and you just got caught. You just got busted. Now, 
If that were to happen to you, and I'm sure we've all had those moments, as it were, where we've gotten caught, we've been exposed, something that was hidden was completely just brought into the light. Uh, it's not only embarrassing uh, and humiliating, but it, it's just, it's very shameful. Now, it's one thing to have those sinful moments uh, exposed in a very private way, uh, but I would want you to think, if you possibly can, your most sinful, shameful moment where you got caught, could you imagine, even just for a moment, what it would be like if that private moment that you got exposed, as it were, were now brought into a very public arena? Imagine, uh, I'll, give, I'll give the example that I just gave, if you got literally caught uh, in the act of viewing pornography, and it wasn't now just in your house, you literally got dragged out of your house and into a very public situation like this, like church. You were brought up on stage, and everyone knew what you had done. Everyone knew what you were looking at. Everyone knew you. Something that was in the dark was now completely brought into the light. Now, I think most of us would say that would be uh, probably the most horrific moment of our life. Uh, to literally be exposed, as it were, in a very public, in a very humiliating, in a very shameful way. Uh, the story we're looking at this morning is a story of a woman uh, who was caught doing something in private, uh, but then her private sin uh, was brought into a very, very public uh, arena, literally in front of uh, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, uh, of people. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip open to John chapter 8, and it's uh, the story uh, of the woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery. Uh, I'll start at uh, John chapter uh, 8, uh, starting at verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, if you're familiar with some of uh, Jesus' teaching, anytime Jesus sits down to teach, there is a multitude of people. So this is not just maybe a room of 15, 20 people. This is in the temple courts. Uh, and I've been to Israel where uh, the temple was. It's a pretty big place. So we're talking thousands of people were probably present uh, and listening to what Jesus is teaching. It goes on in verse uh, 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, caught in adultery. And we'll go on in a little bit to explain, literally caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you can even fathom or imagine what that must have been like for this woman, literally caught in the act of doing something that was not right, that was shameful, that was disgraceful, that was sin, only to be drugged out of your house by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, how confusing that must have been for her. Where are you taking me? Can you imagine the emotions that this woman is feeling? I can only imagine that she is absolutely scared to death. Not only is she humiliated, but where are these men now taking me? And I wonder as she's starting to get closer to the temple courts, if she starts to pray, dear God, do not let them take me in front of all of these crowds and crowds of people. Well, what's really amazing is uh, these men, uh, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, the scribes, ultimately were using this woman. They could care less about who she was. 
and what this really was about is they wanted to use her to get to Jesus. They wanted to use her to trap Jesus. So as she is now literally standing in front of a multitude of people, and I can't even imagine what she might be wearing, maybe half-dressed at best, dragged in front of all of these people, but the attention quickly turns from her to Jesus. Uh, verse 4, it says, in, um, They made her stand before the group, verse 4, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground uh, with his finger. Now, what John, uh, the author of this gospel, of John's gospel, reveals is that what's really happening is that this woman is just totally getting used by these men in order to entrap uh, Jesus. Now, Jesus has got a bit of a dilemma here. He's got really two options. If he chooses option one, option one would be to grant mercy, to look at this woman and say, uh, you're forgiven or grant her mercy. What the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law would then do is they would look at Jesus and accuse him of you clearly are not orthodox in your belief. You clearly have disregarded Old Testament law. You clearly don't care about what Moses has laid out in the Torah. And so Jesus now would be accused of ignoring the Old Testament. Now, that's option one. If he chooses mercy and says, leave the woman alone, he's going to get accused of not caring about Old Testament law. Uh, and if you're a Jewish man and a Jewish rabbi, that's a pretty big accusation to say this man doesn't care uh, about the law. Now, if he were to execute justice and say, stone this woman, uh, as Deuteronomy chapter 22 clearly says, if a, if a man or a woman is uh, caught in the act of adultery, uh, they are to be stoned. Now, if Jesus was to execute justice, meaning condemn the woman to death, now what he would be doing is initiating uh, a full-blown riot where people literally, uh, and I've been there, this is what, generally speaking, the rocks look like. Now, on your chairs, you've got uh, stones, okay? They're not that big of stones, uh, but imagine a crowd of hundreds of people now with stones in their hand, and Jesus says, go ahead, let the woman have, have at it. Go ahead, throw your stones at her. Well, if Jesus did that, then he's going to get in trouble with Rome because it is a crime to incite a riot of any sort uh, in a Roman province, uh, a Roman-governed uh, province, that is. So it's a no-win situation. He's either going to be in trouble with the Jews or he's going to be in trouble with uh, the Romans. Either way, Jesus becomes the accused one, accused by Rome or accused by the Jews. Now it says John has this detail of it. He, uh, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, I have no idea what Jesus wrote. I could give you a whole list of ideas, uh, but they're all purely speculative of what Jesus was actually uh, writing on the ground. But what I do know is this, the Pharisees were getting pretty ticked and annoyed with Jesus because they kept asking him the question, what do you say we should do? And so if you go on in verse uh, 7 and verse 8, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Okay, is that genius of Jesus or what? He had two options, but Jesus created a third. Be accused by the Romans, be accused by the Jews. Those were the two obvious options, but Jesus goes with option three. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And verse eight, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. What did Jesus ultimately accomplish with this one statement? Okay, it's a pretty powerful thing that Jesus said, if any one of you is in this gathering right now and you don't have sin, you go ahead and be the first one to throw your stone. So two things that I see that Jesus, one, he acknowledges that this woman was a sinner. He didn't say, he didn't come to her defense and say she was not without sin. He acknowledges that she's a sinner. She's been caught in sin. But do you know what else he does? He sheds light on to everyone else in the entire gathering in this temple court that they too are with sin. And the second thing that Jesus, he acknowledges that justice is required, but he also sheds light on another truth. Only those without sin can actually carry out righteous justice. So it would be wrong if you have sin to go ahead and throw a stone. A sinner judging another sinner. A sinner sitting in the judgment seat of another sinner. There's only one who can actually cast judgment, and the one who can cast judgment righteous judgment, holy judgment, would be someone who is without sin. Read it again. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Love what Jesus did. Rather than just accuse everyone in the entire place of being these wicked, awful sinners, the woman as well as the people in the gathering, he led people uh, he led people to make the conclusion for themselves. He didn't say anyone in that entire gathering was a sinner. What he did is he forced people to look within themselves. He just made a statement. If you don't have any sin, go ahead. I give you permission. You be the first one to throw a huge stone at this woman, ultimately bringing her to his death. Now, I wanted to ask a question, and I want you to pick up your stone, okay? So hopefully everyone should have uh, a stone uh, on their chair. Now, obviously, your stone's not uh, that big of a stone, but as you consider the stone that literally uh, is in your hand, could you ever actually imagine throwing that stone at someone? And by the way, we're not talking about they're going to be 90 feet away. It's going to be someone five feet in front of you taking a huge stone like this and dropping it on you. So could you ever imagine taking the stone that is literally in your hands and throwing it at someone else? Now, I think most of us would say, yeah, I, I could never do something like that. But as I think about it, we live in a, a community and a culture that is awesome, that is excellent at throwing stones. We live in a culture that is uh, perfected the art of stone throwing, as it were, of casting the judgment uh, on other people. And so a question I wanted just to pause and ask us to consider is, why is it so easy to throw stones at others? And why do we do it so often? 
Well, I give you a few reasons why it's always easier to look at someone else and all of their sin, all of their faults, because it actually helps me to avoid looking at the guy in the mirror. If I'm looking at someone else and their faults and their sin, well, I'm doing one thing. I'm looking at them and I'm not looking at myself. And it's so much easier to keep my eyes fixed on someone else with a stone in my hand, ready to throw it, all the while ignoring huge, huge sin in my own life. Second way, or second reason, it helps us feel better about us. Right? When you judge someone else, well, you're ultimately just looking down on someone else in order to feel better about yourself or to at least rationalize in your own head and heart, well, at least I'm not like them. And the them, you've cast a stone upon them because you deem them of doing something that is so much more horrific than what you possibly are doing or could do. Or why do we throw stones and why do we do it so quickly? I think ultimately this is the reason is because we don't love people. If we were to look at other people as people who bear the same image of God that I bear. See, when God created us, he created us all equal. He created us to bear the same image uh, on all of our lives. And so when I'm judging someone else, throwing the stone as it were, what I'm actually doing is I'm refusing to love that person. I would rather condemn them as it were, rather drop a stone to cause them harm or hurt or destruction. Now, Give an observation here. It's safe to say that none of us likes getting a stone thrown at them. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand, I won't do this, but all of us in here at some time in life have been under someone else's judgment where we just felt like they totally judged us, ripped us apart. Right or wrong, we know what it's like to live under the weight of someone else's condemnation uh, towards us. We know what it's like, how much it hurts, how painful it is for someone else to throw a stone. Now, my observation is, why is it we know something hurts as much as it does, but yet we're so quick to go ahead and do it to someone else? The pain of judging, judgment on our lives from someone else, we know it hurts, but yet we don't hold back in throwing stones uh, at other people. Now, what Jesus did that day was to lead people to make their own conclusion, okay? He led people to make their conclusion, yeah, she's got sin, but now that I think about it, so do I, so do I. And what happened is, and I love what happened in, uh, in verse 9, it says this, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, I don't know if it sounded something like this, but can you imagine about a hundred, if not thousands of stones just dropping on the ground at that one moment? Stone after stone after stone after stone just getting dropped to the ground. I imagine it probably sounded a little like music to this woman's ears. The stones that were about to come her way were now getting literally dropped uh, at her feet. A woman who probably came out at best half-dressed, stones aimed at her. Now these stones are literally getting dropped. 
Now, let me ask a question. If you are older than 36, raise your hand and be proud. Okay, for all of those who are over 36, half your life is over, okay? So welcome to the back half of your life. Working with a rough number between 72-ish, that's statistically how long uh, we're going to hang on. Um, Now, my question for those of you who are 36 and beyond, who have entered into the back half, as it were, are you getting harder as you get older, or are you actually getting more humbler? Okay, are you getting harder, more set in your ways, as it were, kind of the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? You're just so set in your ways, and as you get older, literally, you become a harder person. You're not teachable. You're not moldable. Ultimately, you're just, you're not humble, or do you find that as you've started the back half of life, as it were, you're actually growing in humility? Now, what I love about what John actually points out is uh, when at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with uh, the woman still standing there. The older ones went first. I appreciate the older ones in the crowd who actually had the humility to recognize, yeah, I got sin. I got no right sitting here throwing a stone at someone such as this. Because if anyone were to examine my life, wow, I can't imagine how many stones would start coming my way. What I love about this small detail is the older ones were setting a good example for the younger ones to follow. And so for the older ones here in this place, in this community, what kind of example are you setting? Like it or not, people are going to follow you just because you're older. So what kind of example are you setting for people younger than you to follow? This was a question that I asked uh, uh, the guys who went through the elder process, who are going through the deacon process right now, is, is your life really worth emulating? Is there anything in your life that you don't want someone else to emulate? as it relates to your walk, your disciplines, your marriage, your parenting, your finance, your private time, as it were. Because if there's something you don't want someone else emulating, then why do you continue to do it? See, the hard person says, well, that's just the way I am. I've always been like that. I'll always be like that. Well, if that's you, you'll get older, but you'll get more miserable. But to the person, like these guys in the crowd, the older ones drop the stones first, There's got to be something as we're in the back half of life, as it were, we're growing in humility. We're growing in being teachable and being the first to examine who we are, where we are, what's going on in my life, and setting a good example for those that would follow. The older ones that day were the first to walk away. John 8, verse 10 and 11, the last two verses. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are you? are they? Has no one condemned you? The only thing in this entire story that's recorded that she says, has there been, is there no one here? Open your eyes, wipe the tears away, look around. Is there anyone that is here left to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This series is called Encounters. 
And the heart of this encounter series was that every person who was encountered by Jesus, their life was never the same. Now, we don't know much about this woman, but I promise you that her life was never the same because she heard those few words that Jesus said to her when he said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus says, look around. Where are they? Where are the ones who are ready and willing to crush you with condemning stones? They're all gone. I don't know how long it took for the scene to vacate. Probably took a little bit more than a few minutes. But person after person after person began to walk away until it's literally just her and Jesus. Now, what I love about this is I have no idea if in that moment in time she realized who she she was standing with. If in this moment of time in the temple court that she is standing in the very presence of God in flesh, of the incarnate God, if she realized in this moment that she's standing in the midst of holiness, in the midst of absolute righteousness, if she's, she realized who she was standing with, standing next to her and talking to her. She probably had no idea who Jesus was. She, at best, just refers to him in a respectful way of sir. Probably no idea who she was standing with and probably had no idea that the one standing with her had absolute authority to actually crush her with a stone of judgment, with a stone of condemnation. There's a reason that Jesus was the only one standing there because he could answer the question, if there is someone here that is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. There is a reason that it's just Jesus standing there. It's because Jesus is without sin. And so now we're confronted with what will Jesus do? Will he pick up? He is without sin. He's got full right, full authority to pick up a stone of condemnation and drop it on her. But what I love about what Jesus does is he does not give this woman what she deserves, right? She was caught in the act of adultery. The law said, punishable by death. Jesus does not give this woman what she deserves, but Jesus rather gives this woman what she needed most, and what she needed most was the compassion, the mercy of God. Now, I'll just ask you the question, what is it you really need most right now? Now, after you kind of get through I need to get out of debt, I need a new house, I need a new car, I need a new job, I need a new boyfriend or girlfriend, or I need my husband or my wife to. What do you really need most? What I love about what Jesus did for her is she did not get what she deserved, but Jesus gave her what she needed most, and what she needed most was compassion. Now, Again, I don't know if she really fully understood who she was standing in front of. Now, what I wanted to make clear is that Jesus did not condemn her because she didn't deserve condemnation. She absolutely deserved to be condemned for the sin that she had been committing. So by no means did Jesus say, hey, don't worry about it. It's not really that big of a deal. We won't tell anyone outside of this little circle what's, what's happened here today. Go on your merry little way. Jesus did not skirt the issue as if she deserved to be condemned. 
But I think what would happen later, and maybe when Jesus went to the cross, maybe that's when her eyes were opened of the only the reason that Jesus said, I don't condemn you, is because when Jesus went to the cross, he took the condemnation of her sin and all of sinners' sin upon himself. See, there was someone needed to be condemned. Someone needed to pay the penalty for sin. So what Jesus did is he paid the full weight of her sin, of the sin of humanity. He took that upon himself. And rather than us experiencing what we deserve, full-blown condemnation because of our sin against the holy God, Jesus says, I give you compassion instead of condemnation. I'll take the condemnation. You take my compassion. Some of you are probably going to be familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Awesome verse. But the story goes on in John 3.17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to offer compassion to sinners whose need greatest need is not condemnation our greatest need is compassion here again just one more time what jesus spoke to this woman because i really want you to hear this you're not condemned now that might just sound like words maybe words you've heard before but those are words that should not only penetrate your heart but actually begin to transform your heart and how you live You're not condemned. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing, and no matter what you do tomorrow, next week, next month, if you know Jesus, if you've placed your faith, trust, hope in the gospel message that Jesus is the Savior, you do not stand condemned. If you've got a pen, write that down. I am not a condemned man. A condemned woman. When we walked through, uh, spent a year walking through Romans, probably one of my favorite verses in, in Romans is chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you know Christ, if you're in Christ, in relationship with Christ, no condemnation. Not now, not ever. Why? Well, because Jesus took your condemnation and gave you his compassion instead. Now, a question, who do you think receives this news with great gratitude and celebration? Who's the guy, who's the woman who actually receives this great news? I'm not condemned, I've got compassion instead. Is it the one who's not been busted, caught, or exposed? Or is it the one who has been busted, caught, and exposed? Who receives news like this with great joy, gratitude, and celebration? I probably think the latter. It, takes, it took this woman literally getting caught, literally getting exposed, literally being brought out into the most public form for her to finally realize what she needed most was compassion, not another relationship with some other guy. See, if you haven't gotten caught, If you haven't gotten exposed, if your hand hasn't literally been found in the cookie jar, you don't think you need compassion. Why? Because you think everything's going fine. 
It's not until you get caught, exposed, revealed, found out, stuff that's in the dark, brought into the light, where you finally start to realize what I need more than anything is not to hide this, not to try to fix it, but what I need most is compassion. So the question obviously then becomes, have you been caught? Have you been found out yet? Have you come to the conclusion of, I can't keep going on like this, trying to hide my stuff, trying to fix my stuff. Have you come to your, now, the chance that someone is going to walk through that back door, dragged in half naked, accusation thrown of, hey, this person was just caught doing this, is slim to none. But has that happened to you yet? Have you realized that you have sinned? You're not just a sinner by title, you're a sinner who sins. And what sinners need more than anything is compassion, is mercy, is grace, and that's exactly what Jesus gives. Now, I've personally never met a person in all of my life who said they were perfect, who said they were without sin. I haven't met that person. And I don't think there's any one of us here who'd actually have the audacity or arrogance to say, yeah, I don't need compassion because I'm perfect. I'm without sin. So when you realize who you are and what you're doing, not before the people sitting around you, but before a holy God, that's when you start to realize, wow, what I actually need most is compassion. Now, can you imagine if this woman who was just literally caught red-handed in the act of adultery looked at Jesus and said, hey, thanks for condemning me, but I got it from here. I appreciate you making sure all these people go away, but God bless you. You seem like a really good guy, and uh, I'm going to go back and, and keep doing my own thing. Can you imagine if that woman looked at what Jesus had just done for her, not only literally saved her from the angry mob that was ready to drop stones on her, but literally set her free and gave that message, the good news of you're not condemned. I don't condemn you. Can you imagine if she literally just walked away and just said, hey, Jesus, I promise in the future I'm going to try harder to make sure I don't mess up. And if I do, I'll just I'll make sure I don't get caught. That would be an absolute ridiculous thing for her to do. But yet we say it would be ridiculous for her to do. But yet, how do we respond to the message that Jesus says, you're not condemned, you actually have my compassion? So in the next few minutes, I just want to walk through very quickly, what does it look like to live life as one who has received the message from Jesus that you are not condemned? Practically speaking, what does life look like if you really believe that you are a man or a woman who has received this message, this gospel, this good news that you're not condemned, Jesus has compassion for you, what does life look like? Well, number one, there's only going to be two. Number one is this, you'll stop sinning. <laughs> you'll stop sinning. Now, I know the first thought immediately is, well, okay, that's just not possible. But number one, if you really understand that you are a person who is not under any condemnation, because Jesus has taken all of the condemnation upon himself, the first thing is that we would stop sinning. Notice what Jesus says. He gives her the good news of, you're not condemned. I don't condemn you. 
But then he gives her a charge, a command, and he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, Jesus does not say to her, well, okay, by the way, here's a 10-step program that you can get yourself on to stop sinning. He literally just says, go and stop sinning. Go and leave your life of sin. Why didn't Jesus tell her what she needed to do to make sure that she would actually leave a life of sin or stop sinning? What did Jesus do for her that was the answer to that question? He gave her compassion. See, the answer in us repenting, the answer in us not sinning anymore, as it were, the answer in us not choosing a path to sin is understanding what God has already done for us in giving us compassion, in giving us mercy. Does the fact, here's a question, does the fact that God forgives you and does not condemn you lead you to want to sin more or does it lead you to want to sin less? Now, I realize there's some people who's, who literally live with the mentality is God loves to forgive, so I love to sin. It seems like a great relationship. I'll keep God doing what he loves to do, and I'll just keep doing what I apparently love to do, and we'll be happy. There's some people, though, who look at the compassion of God towards them, God's mercy, God's grace, and it actually leads them to begin to live life very differently, not because they followed a 10-step program, but because they received compassion. The Bible makes very clear that it's God's compassion or kindness or mercy towards us that leads us to repentance. Again, going back to where we talked about in Romans now months ago, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? So if you really want to be the man or woman who stops sinning, who stops walking down that path of sin, of selfishness, of just doing your own thing, it starts and is sustained by looking at the compassion or kindness and mercy of God. Spurgeon said this, Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it anymore? See, when I realized what Jesus gave me, but what Jesus took on for me. He took on my condemnation. He took on my sin. And what I got in exchange was compassion, was mercy, was grace, was love. I start to look at sin very differently. Now, I realize it's easy to say, I'm just go ahead and stop sinning, and it's very different to actually live that out. Well, one of uh, my Bible, the plan that I read scripture uh, through in a year, just happened to be Lamentations chapter 3 today. And what a great reminder to me about God's compassion, God's mercy. It says this in Lamentations chapter 3. 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. If what I need most to stop sinning is God's compassion, then isn't it an amazing thing that God's compassions are new every morning? That it's just not a one-time thing. That every day when I wake up and walk with God, his compassions will sustain me in my walk with God so that when sin presents itself to me, I've got the compassion, God's mercy that I've received that is given to me in abundance to continue not walking in sin, but walking in his compassion. Now, I see this in in marriage a lot. Uh, A husband or wife wants their spouse to change. They want their spouse to stop being selfish. They want their spouse to stop doing something. And so the attitude, the mentality is this. You change, and I'll start demonstrating some love to you. You change. You start acting like this. You start behaving yourself. You fix this. Then I will start loving you. Thankfully, God doesn't look at us and say, you change, you stop sinning, and then I'll love you. God looks at us and says, I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you where you are. My love leads to growth, to change, to repentance. It's God's love. It's his compassion at work in us that leads us to repentance, that leads us to look at sin and say, it doesn't have the same appeal. Because in the light of God's compassion, so much more appealing than this muck and junk and darkness and the weight of that condemnation and the guilt and the shame and then trying to hide it. Why would I want that when I can have this? His compassion, new every day. His faithfulness, always there. His love, extravagant. His grace, never ending. If I get that, then I can look at sin and say, you know what? No more. I'm not interested. I'm done making that choice. Now, kindness and compassion leads to repentance. The Bible makes that pretty clear. But finish with this. Of Again, I want to be as practical as I can because I really believe when Jesus says, go and live, live, leave your life of sin, it wasn't just like a tongue-in-cheek, like, well, good luck to you. I hope you don't find yourself in bed with some other man and get caught by and brought out to the mob. I think Jesus really told her that because he really believed that his compassion would lead towards repentance. So God's compassion leads to repentance to us stop sinning, but here's very practical things on how not sinning actually plays out in how you live. And the first thing is this, is you have to realize that sin is a choice. I realize that you might get tempted Someone might try to lead you astray, but sin is always a choice. No one forces you to sin. No matter the sin, it is always your choice. I realize that sometimes it is you getting sinned against, but it was someone else's choice to sin. Realize that you don't have to sin. And every time you sin, you have to say, you know what? I made that choice. No one made me think that. No one made me do that. No one made me drink this. No one made me go here. I chose to intentionally go the path of guilt and shame and fear rather than choosing to enjoy 
compassion, mercy, grace, kindness. Every time we choose sin, we're going backwards, not forwards. Isn't that great what Jesus said? Go, don't go backwards, go and live a new life. My compassion is going to sustain you in the new life that I'm calling you to go towards. I just love that picture of every time I sin, I'm intentionally going backwards. I'm intentionally removing myself, causing a disruption in my relationship with God. See, I believe God wants to use all of you. He wants to do great things in all of us, not so we can accomplish great things, so that God would be glorified in all of us. But every time I choose sin, I'm intentionally removing myself from what God wants to do with me, in me, through me. So sin is a choice. So today, after you're leaving church and you're driving home and someone does something stupid, rather than having a thought in your head, a, a malfunction in your finger to go up, <laughs> screaming at it's your choice to do that. You don't have to respond in a sinful way. Lean on the grace, compassion of Jesus. The second thing is, learn to call sin, sin. It's always interesting to me when I hear people t- tell me, well, I'm really struggling with this. You're not struggling with that. That's a sin. I don't struggle with sin. When I sin, I sin. Now, I struggle not to work out once a month. That's a struggle, okay? That's not a sin. That's a genuine struggle. I eat too much Ben and Jerry's. Not a sin. Well, it could be. That's a struggle, okay? Learn to differentiate between actual sin and struggle. Because when I say that I I struggle with something, I don't really take it that seriously. Because I don't see my struggle as having a huge impact on my life. And if you struggle with something, by the way, you don't generally confess it. I haven't confessed, well, I just did to you, that I don't really work out that much. Well, I don't feel like I need to confess that. But you know what? I don't struggle with pornography. I don't struggle with this. No, when I'm looking at porn, when I'm doing whatever, I'm intentionally sinning. And if I call sin, sin, then I confess sin as sin. And until I confess sin as sin, then I start to receive the compassion that I need to repent of the sin that I've been committing. I don't confess my struggles. I confess my sins. So point is simple. Learn to call sin, sin. And then lastly, Jesus demonstrated his love in taking upon himself the stone of condemnation so that we would not have to. So let the love of Christ literally compel you to live life differently, namely, don't sin. I love how Paul said in in Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you really believe that Christ loved you enough to take on condemnation upon himself so that you could receive compassion, man, that should compel us to live so differently. I'm not living to get something from God. I'm living in light of everything he's already given me. Jesus said to the woman, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. 
And he gave her everything that she needed to make sure that sin was no longer a reality in her world and it was his compassion. Now, pick up your rock once again. I wanted to uh, give this to you as a gift. I know, I'm very generous. What'd you get at church today? I got a rock. Well, the rock that is in your hand, uh, I don't typically do this a lot, uh, but this week as I was just sitting and kind of praying through this passage, I wanted something that would be memorable to you. Something where you'd see it every day, whether you put it in your car, on your desk, in your kitchen, in your nightstand, that you would see that rock and remember, I'm not a condemned man or woman. And there's some red on the rock. And the red is to remind us that actually Jesus took the stone of condemnation for me. That's his blood that was completely shed so that I didn't actually take a condemning stone. He took it. And in place, I received his compassion. That every day you would see somewhere, place it somewhere where you'd see it and remember, my goodness, this is what Jesus did for me. I didn't receive this rock. Jesus took it upon himself. 